Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. India is currently in the midst of the single worst spike in COVID cases experienced anywhere in the world since the start of the pandemic. At time of recording, India was registering over 350,000 new cases each day with no end in sight. Hospitals are completely overwhelmed. Oxygen is in very short supply. People are dying of COVID on the streets. Given the sheer size of India, what is happening right now is a humanitarian crisis of a massive scale. On the line with me to explain how and why the COVID crisis got so bad so quickly in India is Michael Kugelman. He is the Asia Program Deputy Director and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson Center. We kick off discussing the current state of affairs in India before having a broader conversation about the political and international implications of India's spiraling crisis. I was very glad to have Michael Kugelman back on the show. At this point, he is a regular guest, and I always appreciate his insights related to happenings in South Asia. And before we start, I wanted to plug a great podcast called Worldly. Is Myanmar heading for a civil war? What happened with Europe's vaccine rollout? What does the future of the U.S.-Saudi relationship look like? There is a lot of news coming at us from all over the world, and it can be hard to follow, let alone understand. Let Worldly be your guide. It's a podcast from Vox about the world's biggest issues. Every Thursday, senior correspondent Zach Beecham, senior foreign editor Jennifer Williams, and White House reporter Alex Ward give you the history and context you need to make sense of global stories. If you like global dispatches, you will certainly appreciate Worldly. You can find Worldly in your favorite podcast app. It's from Vox and the Vox Media Podcast Network. And now here is my conversation with Michael Kugelman of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Yeah, when I talk with friends and contacts on the ground, the words that I hear repeatedly are nightmare, dire, catastrophe. So, you know, words that would typically come across as hyperbolic uh, in many contexts are being used routinely to describe the extent of the crisis in India, which you know, really refers to the incredibly tragic strain on the, the health infrastructure, uh, the fact that you have so many hospitals in major cities, including uh, New Delhi, that have been very low on oxygen for a number of days, and in some cases have temporarily ran out before it's been replenished. And uh, you have these horrific scenes of people very sick, um, uh, on the verge of death, arriving at hospitals and not being able to get a bed or any type of medical assistance and essentially dying outside these overcrowded under uh, under capacity hospitals. So it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And when, when I hear friends in India telling me these stories, it's even more heartbreaking. Um, I, I do know some people that have passed away uh, over the last uh, week or so 
So it's just uh, an, an incredibly tragic situation. And in some cases, one has to say uh, how I would describe it. You know, all I can say is that I don't have words. It's, it's, really, it's really been that bad, particularly in certain uh, major cities like New Delhi. Actually, that was going to be my my next question is, you know, how distributed is this crisis across India or is it located, concentrated in major cities? Yeah, so it's it's hard to tell. But certainly what we do know for sure is that New Delhi and Mumbai, which are two of the biggest cities in uh, in India and are essentially the, the financial capital and the political capital, they've been hit the hardest, uh, you know, in terms of uh, numbers of new cases, numbers of deaths. Uh, the the burden on 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 health infrastructure, that's where the ground zero is, um, so to speak. But you know, every day it seems like there's a new story about which city or which state could be could be next, so to speak. Uh, and for example, there's been talk in recent days about uh, the emergence of a potential new highly infectious variant in West Bengal uh, state which happens to be a state uh, that is having an election and had been holding very large, crowded uh, political rallies until very recently. Um, and, you know, because the media doesn't get out to the really rural areas as much as it does to the cities, I think that it's hard to, to know exactly how bad or good or relatively good the situation is um, outside of the major cities in, in the hinterland. But uh, I think that what we do know is that it's, Mumbai and uh, and Delhi are the major hotspots, but it goes it goes much it goes much beyond that as well. And, you know, and those are two of the larger cities in the world. You know, nowhere in the world since the start of the COVID pandemic has anywhere been hit harder than those two cities. And it's kind of hard, at least for me, just to wrap my head around the scale of this unfolding humanitarian crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about. New Delhi, which is indeed a city of about 20 million people, or even more than 20 million. And when you hear that um, just about every hospital uh, in the city has been low on oxygen, I mean, that's extraordinary, right? I mean, you're talking about the capital of the second most populous country in the world, which itself has about 20 million people. Hospitals are running out of oxygen. I think that in of itself, and that's only one factoid, that highlights the extent of the, the tragedy and the crisis in this country right now. So how did it get this bad and so quickly? You know, just like in early March or mid-March even, you know, the trend lines were kind of in the positive direction in India in terms of COVID, but now we have this extraordinarily sharp spike. Yeah, this is this is certainly one of the major questions about the current situation in India is how did things get so bad so quickly? Um, and I would argue that even last year, when India had its first surge and, and around the summer of 2020, it was it was pretty bad in terms of numbers and in terms of deaths. But it didn't compare to the incredible toll, the death toll and the number of cases in, in the United States and many other countries around the world. And indeed, it was just uh, February where you were having, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 new uh, cases um, each day. So how did the country go from that to the, the, the record-breaking more than 300,000 new cases each day? And I think there's several factors at play. One is that um, there was a new uh, highly infectious variant that has emerged in India and is really widely regarded to be the trigger for, for the crisis right now. 
It's an Indian variant. It was not brought in from elsewhere. And as far back as October, there were indications that it had emerged. It had been detected by scientists. And this is back in October. But um, the, 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 there was not sufficient genetic studies and um, there was not enough research done at the time to focus on it more, which is a bit of a, of a concern right there. Um, and then we got into the, the February or March period. And this is when you started to have a large and consistent number of very large crowded events with largely unmasked people. Um, and we're talking about large numbers of these events. So, and mainly political and religious events. So it's really a perfect storm at play here, but a number of states across India um, have elections and elections can be very long in India, particularly in the larger states that can take place over a period of several months and you have a lot of election rallies. So many states across India had been having very large election rallies and there had not been any effort on the part of the state or central governments to try to ensure that these were not crowded valleys, or at least to ensure that people were in masks. Separately, uh, there is a major uh, religious observation, a uh, Hindu uh, uh, religious festival being held along the, the banks of the Ganges River in which millions, not hundreds, not thousands, but millions of, of pilgrims have come to the Ganges River in, in recent weeks to participate in this festival. Again, huge crowds, very few masks. And the fact that the government did so little to try to limit those, those, those events, I think that essentially enabled so many of these events to be super spreaders and you know what happens from there. Final point, it seems quite clear that the government had been very complacent and it had been willing to declare victory over the pandemic uh, really in February, March when the cases were down. So the health minister of India had said that we are in the end game, that's a direct quote, we are in the end game of the pandemic. He said this in March. So I think that the government knew that there were potential warning signs. I had mentioned that the, the detection of this new variant had been had come out way back in October. Um, so it had reason to think that it shouldn't be declaring victory yet, but it, wa it wanted to declare victory. It did. It wanted to move on. And I think it wasn't willing to take seriously the continued threat of the pandemic, hence its decision not to crack down on these heavily attended events with not enough uh, people in masks. So it's basically a just a, a perfect storm of, of factors. And finally, I should underscore that this new, this new variant is so much more infectious and contagious than what was in place last year. And I think that's, that's really a key factor too. Given all that you have just described about how we got to this point, to what extent uh, are people blaming Modi and, and his government? How is this current surge impacting domestic politics in India right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, as you know, um, Narendra Modi has been wildly popular uh, throughout his, uh, his almost two full terms in, in power. Uh, it's been uh, quite a few years that he's been in power. So it's been about seven years now. And he has done some controversial things in his time in office. Um, We've he, talked about them. We have, exactly. We have, yes. he's, he's done some controversial things, such as a decision to suddenly um, uh, take uh, huge amounts of currency um, out, of, out of the supply, uh, which meant that in a, in a country where very few people have credit cards, they all of a sudden couldn't have access to cash. See, he's, he's gained this reputation for doing these very bold, sudden and controversial things, but he doesn't suffer politically for it. And I tend to label him as 
a modern day Teflon man. You know, I think that you may recall that back in the day, Ronald Reagan was described as a Teflon man, meaning that, you know, he had a lot of challenges and vulnerabilities sort of swirling around him, but he managed to withstand them. And like, yeah. it, it didn't stick to him. So to nothing speak. sticks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in this case with Modi, I, I certainly have seen a number of staunch supporters of the government, the ruling party, Modi himself, expressing a lot of unhappiness toward the government, particularly about this issue of complacency, about being too proud, um, showing hubris. That's a word that I've heard a lot. Too much hubris, wanting to focus on declaring victory and not taking seriously the fact that the pandemic had not gone away. Now, what implications could that have for his political future? I don't think we should overstate the implications. I mean, certainly, you know, he's been dealt, his government has been dealt a significant setback. But, um, you know, at the same time, he has a large base of hardcore supporters that will find a way to really see him and his government as, as a victim here, uh, in which they, they can simply say, well, you know, there is nothing that the government could do. You had this new variant that emerged. It was highly contagious. Any country would have all kinds of trouble uh, reigning in under control. And I think keep in mind as well that the political opposition in India is practically non-existent. Uh, you know, the other major political party, the Congress party, has been so weak and has done so poorly in recent elections that I don't think even with this potential boost coming out of this, this pandemic surge, I, I'm not sure that it would have the ability to capitalize on what's going on and ride the coattails of this. I don't like to use political terms to describe a humanitarian crisis, but my point is that I don't think the opposition would be able to sufficiently capitalize on what's going on just because it is so um, inherently weak. So, yeah, Modi's received a setback, but I don't necessarily think that's going to hurt his long term political prospects. So internationally, it seems at least that one key impact implication of this unfolding crisis in India is that India, which had been a key exporter of the COVID vaccine through the Serum Institute, they were the key manufacturer of the global vaccine that was provided through COVAX to countries in Africa in particular. Those exports have, have now stopped as far as I can tell. Can you just talk a little bit about why in the first place India sought to export so many doses of the vaccine and you know what are the implications now of having India suddenly stop the export of vaccines manufactured in in India at the Serum Institute Yeah this this is this is a really important question here and it gets back to the issue of how did this virus, how did this surge come out and why has the government been uh, been criticized for how it's handled it? Yeah, back in January, just a few months ago, when India appeared to be turning the corner, when the number of new cases was significantly down, it rolled out the world's first national vaccination campaign. It beat everyone out. Uh, and this was only in January. And yeah, it started sending millions of vaccines initially to its South Asian neighbors, but also uh, to more far-flung areas as well. And, you know, the official uh, justification given by the government was that this was essentially a humanitarian measure to try to help the world. And, you know, this is an area where uh, India does enjoy some comparative advantage, particularly relevant to rivals like China, because, you know, India has a track record of being a major producer of not just vaccines, but pharmaceutical materials. And it's, it's India has been described by many as the world's pharmacy. It produces a lot of cheap uh, pharmaceuticals. It produces about, I think, 50 to 60% of the world's total vaccine supply under ordinary circumstances. 
So it had the ability to do that, but I think there were more strategic reasons for this. I think that India wanted to try to uh, basically uh, uh, outcompete China uh, in trying to provide vaccines to, to the world. China had also uh, initiated a campaign of what's described as vaccine diplomacy, but it took a longer time for it to get going and it couldn't get as many out there. Um, I think India also wanted to uh, went, earn back some soft power that I believe it, uh, it thinks it had squandered because of some of its policies that have attracted a number of critical international media coverage. So India had its reasons for doing this, this vaccine, the, these, these vaccine exports. And again, at the time, the, num- the coronavirus situation in, in India appeared to be well in hand, but indeed things got worse. Uh, and then it had to that had to step back, and indeed India is now in a in a quandary because it, it has to scale back its exports in order to provide for domestic supply. But you have many countries in the developing world that are expecting additional doses from India, and they really need those doses because, as you know, there's a major disparity in terms of developed world and developing world and vaccine capacity. So India is in a tough spot. Um, I'm not sure how the government plans to to address this. I imagine it'll take each each country with, on a case by case basis. But I think in the immediate term, it needs to focus at home. There's nothing else it can do. But you know, final word on this. I think that this whole story about India's short lived vaccine um, export campaign sort of an indication of just how what's going on in India with the pandemic. It has obviously huge implications for India, but it has implications for the world as well. I mean, the fact that it thought it beat the virus and it started exporting vaccines abroad, and then things got worse at home and it need to scale back. This has left a lot of countries in the lurch, so to speak, and they need those vaccines. They need them from India, but India can't provide them now. It also seems that another layer of geopolitical intrigue, I suppose, has been how perceptions of the Biden administration have been impacted by the American response, or at least for a long while, the the non-response by the United States to this unfolding humanitarian crisis in, in India. I follow your Twitter feed and the Twitter feed of of other Indian commentators and, and people in India who seem to express near outrage at like the lack of action by the Biden administration, though in recent days that seems to have changed. Can you just describe what the Biden administration is proposing to do to help India at this moment of crisis and you know what Indian perceptions of the Biden administration are at the moment? Yeah, so the the Biden administration's response to India's crisis was very striking, uh, mainly because it went from radio silence for quite some time to very suddenly rapid fire. So basically, the government, the the, the U.S. government, was really not saying much at all uh, publicly about the about India's crisis. It wasn't even expressing statements of support or sympathy. There were no tweets from senior U.S. officials, even while the likes of Iran. China, Russia, even Pakistan. Yeah, even I saw Imran Khan wrote a, a, a yeah, generous tweet. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All of these rivals of the U.S. and India were stepping up to the plate to express solidarity or to to to, uh, to offer up support, whereas the U.S. was completely quiet. And you know, no one really knows what the reason is for the for the lag. Now, certainly, this gets to the perceptions of of those in India. You know, there have been some theories that well, this is a case of the U.S. government showing that it uh, is not the dependable partner that it wants to be seen as in India. 
Um, and, you know, there is a perception among many in India as well, particularly among the, the right wing, that democratic uh, presidents, democratic administrations are not as friendly to India as Republican administrations are. And they point to, you know, what happened during the Bill Clinton era when uh, the U.S. imposed uh, pretty harsh sanctions on India because it became the formal, former, pardon me, formal nuclear state. I don't think that's true at all. I think things were great with India during the Obama years, but that was another, that was a perception. And some even believe that the, the Biden administration was unhappy about some of the Modi government's policies, uh, particularly regarding to uh, related to democratic backsliding, and was also unhappy with um, the, the types of things that we've been discussing, the, the slow, complacent response. I don't think those things are the case at all. I think the reason for the the, low, the slow uh, response was much more mundane and boring, and that's that this government, the Biden administration, is overextended. It's still getting its sea legs. It's pretty new. It didn't have time initially to focus laser-like on this crisis, as serious as it was. And also, you know, the Biden administration has many, many vacant India-focused and South Asia-focused positions. You have very few senior folks who are in this administration focus exclusively on India and the region. We don't have a, the U.S. Doesn't, has not yet sent a new ambassador out to New Delhi. So I think that's another factor here. If you had an ambassador uh, in, in, in India, if you had a senior person at the State Department focused on India, now these folks would be you know, calling the White House, banging on all the key doors, and that would, I think, would have ensured there would have been a faster response. So in terms of what the administration has done now that it's 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 turned the corner, so to speak, and it's um, it's uh, expressed its intent to help, it's come out with a pretty comprehensive package that is going to entail, on one hand, providing a number of critical supplies like oxygen, ventilators, that type of thing. It has also decided to uh, free up uh, a part of its uh, surplus stockpile of vaccines and specifically the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, it's going to be sending up to 60 million overseas. A significant component of those will go to India. We don't know how many. And there's also the administration has also said it's going to use the um, the International Development Finance Corporation, a relatively new U.S. government agency, to provide investments to help strengthen the capacity of India to manufacture its own vaccine. So there's a pretty comprehensive package, aid package that's being put together um, involving an interagency uh, mechanism. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's a case of too little, too late. It may be too late, but it's not too little. There's a lot there. Um, so it is coming. But certainly, you know, many in India will, for some time, I think, feel a bit aggrieved about why it took so long for the U.S. to respond to this horrible humanitarian crisis playing out in what is articulated in, in Washington as a key, important partner. Uh, lastly, how do you see the situation unfolding in India over the coming weeks? Well, you know, I think the first, the, the important thing is that the, the, the central government needs to be fully focused on, on this issue, which it is now. It took a really long time. That's part of the problem why it got to where things are. But it is fully focused on it now. That needs to continue. I think it's also important that... Um, Modi and the the, the governments uh, coordinate responses with the different state governments, and that's particularly important in the cases of those state governments that are controlled by uh, non you know basically non DJP um, hmm. rival parties of the Modi administration. That's critical. Um, I think it's important that there be 
sustain international assistance in the short term, oxygen supplies, because I think that's the most immediate need is oxygen, because you know, you've had cases of hospitals running out, they do get replenishments, but then they start running low again. So once the oxygen supply is stabilized, that would that'll that'll be a, a good sign. But you know that that could take some time. And beyond that, the big challenge for India is figuring out how to address its uh, vaccine shortages. And certainly, it's going to be it's it's getting some from the international community, not just the U.S., but a number of other countries have pledged to send vaccines. Um, it needs to be able to focus more on producing its own vaccines. And I think a key date to look at uh, moving forward is May first. Uh, which is just a few days from now, that is when uh, India will be expanding eligibility for vaccines. It's going to basically open up vaccine eligibility to anyone over the age of 18. And until relatively recently, you had to be 45 to get a vaccine, which is quite extraordinary. And this is a very young country uh, where the, you know, it's, 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 it's demogra- the youth are demographically dominant. So you'll have a lot more people that are able to get a vaccine starting May 1st. But the question is, Will India have enough vaccines to actually be able to follow up on that new um, on that new development? We'll see. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much. As always, extremely harrowing situation, but I appreciate you taking time to help uh, explain it to me and, and to my listeners. My pleasure. Always a always a pleasure to join you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael Kugelman. Obviously, a very disturbing situation. But uh, it's nonetheless, I think, important that we discuss this just massive humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in the second largest country in the world. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Please send me a note. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I always love hearing from you. And again, thank you all for leaving reviews of the show on Apple Podcasts or Wherever it is you listen, uh, the reviews help. I appreciate reading them as well. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.